Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 127, and we are discussing Robert E. Howard's Conan the Conqueror. With me today is Hoy the Conqueror. I have conquered everything within arm's reach, and I think that's the limit. And today we are also joined by illustrator and graphic designer who's worked with some of my favorites like Dolly Parton, Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Rob Zombie. And he is also the illustrator for the Fell Folk of the Moors. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Johnson. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Eric. It's great to see you again. It's been such a long time. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So, Eric, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into gaming? How did you get into fantasy, science fiction, horror, fiction? Tell us all that stuff. Okay, so uh, I I come at it a lot from a visual background first. Uh, I got I was given the red box uh, for D and D when I turned eight, and I love the drawings in that. The drawing on the back of uh, Oh, would uh, keep on the borderlands uh, with the with the elves and the orcs and stuff like that it was one of my first like great pieces of artwork where I was looking at it, realizing that the artist had been thinking about it prior to drawing it, uh, that some planning had been involved in it. Um, I absolutely love that, but didn't realize, uh, didn't put together how to play it as a game until a few years later when I made friends with a kid who loved D and D uh, and played a lot of that. Uh, late first edition stuff. And, um, you know, obviously there's Star Wars was an influence, uh, but I had a few other uh, important influences, one of which was I wound up getting a, um, I wound up seeing The Incredible Shrinking Man when I was five and probably inappropriately young for it and blown away by the concepts in it and wound up um, getting a set of the Norman Saunders Civil War cards from Tops that were probably about 15 years old at the point I got them. And those were pretty mind-blowing. And then, uh, oh, N.C. Wyatt's uh, Treasure Island illustrations. Oh, yeah, those are amazing. For another yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, there's Star Wars, which kind of took... Um, Star Wars was, a, you know, the first Star Wars was a really big deal. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, but in terms of like visual influence, it kind of broke open that interest in sci-fi. And then I kind of went in, I don't know. The truth is um, I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I was introduced to Tolkien pretty early um, in terms of content. I'm more of a horror creator in terms of drawing and design and stuff like that. But I absolutely love uh, low fantasy is probably my favorite. <laughs> and Eric, do you have any recommendations for our listeners for things that you think people should read for gaming inspiration? Uh, I wound up cracking open the uh, appendix and the actual appendix end and looking and realizing that Robert Howard's only, the only suggested Robert Howard is uh, the Conan series. And I think that, okay, so I was introduced to Conan like about 2003. Um, I mean, of course I'd seen the movies before, but the books, I wound up getting the Del Rey editions when they were done for the first time, completely 
purged of Elsprog de Camp and Lynn Carter and um, really just fell in love with the narrative of those. Uh, and I think that um, it's always worth checking out the Cull the Conqueror uh, version of that because Cull is a much more, uh, much more, uh, almost more psychedelic than uh, than than Conan. There, there's a lot weirder adventures, and he fights lizard people and gets hypnotized by a mirror. And some of the adventures are closer to what you'd find in a gaming supplement. Um, and my absolute favorite of them, uh, I would recommend, is the Brand McMorn book, and specifically Worms of the Earth. Because right. that is one of the most extraordinary kind of action-packed Lovecraft influences that you know, like it heavily influenced by Lovecraft, but done in a completely action-oriented way, and it's a really fantastic story. And since we, you know, we have you here, uh, you know, as an artist, how about some artists yeah. that you would think would be great to draw visual inspiration from, and maybe not ones that are already in the D D and D canon? You mentioned NCYF, maybe a couple others that might be people worth looking at to be honest i i i love what justin sweet did for the for the call books and i do love what gary gianni did um for the for the conan the specific conan the bloody the one that um the del rey edition that we wound up doing that that i wound up finding this story originally from um i love mark schultz Mm -hmm. but when it comes to i tend to want to shy away a bit from the kind of current fancy art trends, I wind up, I have a, a little bit of a hard time with that. I really love first edition through third edition art for D and D. And, and once you get a little bit beyond that, um, I was always, I heard once in a podcast that the kind of, they were meant to look like lost tomes in the first couple of editions. And then later they kind of became fantasy depictions of the fantasies of the player. So I, I love the lost tomes. I just got a book on Bruegel. It's so, and, and it's so nuts. Some of like Bruegel's the triumph of death and some of that other stuff. Right. So you're looking at stuff that almost is like weird found artifacts, as opposed to sort of yeah. wish fulfillment that we might see in sort of more fa- modern fantasy art is the kind of things you're looking at. I really like that. Some of the influences in the more recent, like Elden Ring game, has such a strange medieval grotesque quality to it that I kind of always like that. I, although I do tend to like a more of a dark, um, dark age style as opposed to a high Renaissance style. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of the Hildebrandt brothers, Lord of the Rings thing got a little Renaissancey for me. Yeah. A little Ren fair, a little, uh, yeah, yeah, a little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes <laughs> sense. But I, I think, um, well, I think one of the things that we allude to, um, and it's not that different. I mean, we're talking about visually, but even writing-wise, uh, Jeff, we talk about how um, it's not everything is not all colored in, right? Uh, there's a lot of room around the edges, both in the fiction sense in Appendix N and in the the art that you're describing, right? It's it's not super codified, Jeff. That's the point that you often make about how uh, modern fantasy is very codified. The magic systems are very codified. The world building is like you know from ancient prehistory to the you know to the current day of the story everything is is there and and we're looking for something that still has that sense of mystery right i think is um, and wonder right i think is i think something that appeals to all of us at least um if i'm if i'm interpreting what you're saying correctly eric absolutely i yeah. i love um 
Oh God, I think Angus McBride uh, is an illustrator from a couple of, from late 20th century who did a lot of the Osprey books and um, right, and you know all the I'm Middle not, Earth role playing covers too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I love um, yeah. those Osprey books because if you want to know how knots were tied yeah. in in Roman outfits, that's great. But I that's I don't necessarily want to see that in my f- kind of evocative fantasy art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So are you a little bit more Errol Otis than Clyde Caldwell? Oh, very, yeah. Er, yeah. It turns out that er, I'm a huge Errol Otis fan, even though I had no idea who he was. <laughs> like <laughs> his drawing of the cobble killing a, a snake and some of those other things are just fantastic. Yeah, he's amazing. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at which edition of the books we are working with. Um, let's go ahead and start with you, Eric. What do you got? Uh, I got the 1967 uh, Lancer Conan the Conqueror, and um, because uh, of the uh, uh, the to Camp uh, triggered a lot of distrust, so I wound up getting um, taking my Del Rey edition of uh, the Bloody Crown of Conan uh, to double check against for mm-hmm. certain things. Also, that the content of those is fantastic. I did a very similar thing. I'm reading the 1967 Lancer paperback. It's got a slightly different cover than yours, but it's still the Frank Frazetta. It's just a slightly different um, graphic design layout. Um, Yours is an earlier printing. Yours is a first or a second printing. Mine is a third, fourth, or fifth printing. Oh, excellent. Um, But um, I also listened to the Audible audiobook of um, The Bloody Crown of Conan, along with reading the El Sprague de Camp edited version. Um, so I also was able to kind of compare and contrast. There were very, very few changes. Yeah, I couldn't um, find any. The only one, I mean, I, I know in the patron book club we did, Dan Alexander told us that he had like, um, that he had Googled it to see what the changes were. And it's just kind of a word here and there. I did not do that. So I, I don't know exactly what all the changes are. There's only one that I noticed and I actually appreciate the change because um, at the point where Conan is kidnapped and he's in the dungeons and there are the black slavers, mm-hmm. at one point, um, Robert E. Howard refer- refers to them as grunting in their ape-like speech. Oh, yeah. And um, Ellsberg DeCamp changes that grunting in their guttural right, speech. Right. Uh, Joseph Hoopman yeah, pointed that out in uh, my session of the book club as well. So that's the one major change that he noticed. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's one word, but I'm very grateful right. for the change right. personally. Yeah. I think that was a wise editorial decision on behalf of Elspreg de Camp, which is not a sentence that's stated often yeah. when we're talking about Elspreg de Camp's ed- editorial decisions right. no. uh, for Conan. Right. They did some very similar things to the um, uh, Burroughs Tarzan books in the early 60s, too, and just a few minor changes okay. like that. But some purists are still like, hey, I really still want to read it like the way it was. I'm like, well, I don't think that's make that big of a deal. But <laughs> yeah, I, I don't necessarily need yeah. it. That, that one word change yeah. is fine with yeah. me. Um, Hoy, which edition are you working right. with? I was reading the Del Rey, um, but I do have, uh, and I did not have a chance to read the same one that Eric has um, because I wanted to read the camp's introduction. But in addition, um, Oliver was in the book club and he, he had the Hour of the Dragon, which was the first restored version oh. of this. Um, yeah. And he said that actually that also has a very good um, introduction and afterward by Carl Edward Wagner about sort of the publishing history, um, which I did not know anything about, uh, that this was specifically written for the British market to sort of introduce Conan to the British market, um, among other things. Um, also, this one has the uh, still has the intact 
poster. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> For those listening, there was a fold-out poster of Conan right. looking all conan Right, which uh, apparently is often torn out of the book. So this one still has that one in there. So um, <laughs> I can see why. It's very cool. Yeah, yep. Um, so I need to dive into that, but I missed that. I did not have a chance to do that before the episode. So, And now we can uh, take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Um, Hoy, do you want to go ahead and share what you've chosen? Um, I, I actually like your candidate, although a couple of the people in our book club had had some interesting ones. So let's go with yours today. All right. And the word that I chose is Nader, which is mentioned on page 47 of this book. And it says it was the pollen of the black lotus, which creates death-like sleep and monstrous dreams. And he knew that only the grisly wizards of the black ring, which is the nadir of evil, voluntarily seek out the scarlet nightmares of the black lotus to revive their necromantic powers. And the word nadir means the lowest point in the fortunes of a person or an organization, as in they had reached the nadir of their sufferings. There you <laughs> the go. Rock bottom. <laughs> rock bottom <laughs> exactly rock bottom <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um eric did you have a candidate yes i did on uh, page 69 but i one thing i think that um you often choose a verb or a descriptive term and i want to be using a noun like a proper noun so um dusty glinting male figure moved out of the shadows into the starlight this is no plumed and burnished palace guardsman it was a tall man in moiran and gray chainmail, one of the adventurers um there's a this has there's four semicolons in the remainder of that sentence so i'm not going to go through the whole thing <laughs> but the word was moiran uh which i had never heard before and it turns out it is a an, an unadorned helmet basically um the similar style uh to what the conquistadors wore mm-hmm. okay that kind of uh, metal cap with a with the little brim and the yeah. With a little brim. Yeah, yeah. And Dan Alexander pointed out that one of the changes in the text is um I forget the word, but there was a fancier word for helmet, the kind I think that has like the big plume on mm-hmm. it. Um and apparently in the Osprey de Camp version, he just changed that word to helmet yeah. and apparently it's listed a bunch of was times. It like Burg- but I for- Burgonet or was that what? I-, I think that was yeah. it. I think that was the word. Yeah. Yes. Um uh, Eric, it's also interesting that you mentioned that passage because this is actually one where um, I think Robert E. Howard is specifically like he came across a historical thing that he really wanted to include and oh, then he yeah. wanted to change it up so that he could be in a story. So what he's, what he's talking about here is he's talking about the Spanish Hidalgos, which are these uh, Spanish nobles who have no land or actual title, but they, they are also not taxable and they, they couldn't force them to work. So the, the Hidalgos basically were the 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 bulwark of the conquistadors, right? Oh, okay, that makes total sense. And it's like so a Ronin, about, right? And so he's saying, oh, these guys, and it literally means son of somebody. Hijo de algo. It's like, oh, so he's important. He's the son of somebody. Um, but, uh, but uh, yeah. So he's like, oh, in this particular passage, oh, they could be a bandit or they could be a general, and they couldn't really be ordered around these guys, right? So that was that's when he was like, so I think that was. Uh, Howard's like little like historical tidbit and he's like, Oh, I love this thing. And I want to include it somehow, somewhere. <laughs> so, oh, I love so that. The yeah, I, I don't know at what point it's best to bring up, but um, there is a certain, uh, there's in the, a lot of talk about how uh, Robert Howard really wanted to be a historical fiction writer and that the, uh, the rabbit hole of research was so deep and so extensive and the, and the market for it was so limited that he wound up kind of, 
going into the Hyborian age is kind of his answer to that, which is you, you scrub some of the serial numbers off of contemporary cultures and then uh, like just create this world where where you can write any kind of story you want and then bring in historical facts as you want them. Yeah, it gives you a lot of freedom. And this yeah. particular story is an exemplar of that. And I guess we can talk about that once we get into the... Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's go on into the library. Yeah. So um, now, now that we're here, Eric, what do you think of Conan the Conqueror? Um, I really... Okay, I love this book. I... Um, this was uh, something that I read as part of the Bloody Sword of Con- uh, the Bloody Crown of Conan, and um, People of the Black Circle was the short story preceding it, and I found that um, I had all, I had in my mind kind of combined them a little bit because People mm-hmm. of the Black Circle has some amazing sequences about magic and how magic works within the Conan universe, and I liked that quite a bit. Um, the thing that occurred to me about Hour of the Dragon, um, should I call it Hour of the Dragon or Conan? Oh, Conan? Con- you okay. can call it whatever your heart is calling out. Use that. <laughs> my, my heart says Hour of the Dragon. So. <laughs> but okay, so um, they talk about the, the Conan as being a man of gigantic melancholies and gigantic birth. And this is definitely Conan on um, a, in a manic phase. And it even says, what page is it where he, he's he's so much in a manic phase that while he's riding down the river on the boat, it says how his body needs no rest because he's so pumped about the adventure that he's going on. <laughs> and, and the whole thing kind of becomes this like uh, <laughs> guy who is kicked out of power for a year and then goes on this incredible sabbatical um, <laughs> where he's just totally having a blast the whole time. Well, his his uh, kingdom is being tortured, and then he winds up coming back and reconquering it and settling back down, even to the extent where he gets married completely on a whim based on the woman's uh, taste in daggers, <laughs> which <laughs> indicates to him that she's a person of great character. That's Yeah, because it's a novel, and I never read another... Um, full-length Howard novel, you don't have this this sense of um, uh, explaining uh, Conan's sinews and this sort of uh, loving description of what a badass he is. Like the, there's there's a lot less of that like pantherish pantherish uh, description where his yeah. you know than you usually would have. And there's a lot more people bonking him on the head and him passing out mm-hmm. and then being drug off somewhere. Right. That happens quite right. a bit. Yeah, he gets several concussions over the course right. of he, this. He expresses a little doubt in here, too. And I think you're right, Eric, because um, in the short stories, it's almost like you need an establishing shot, right? We're talking about it, turning it into, and Howard's a very visual writer. So every time in a short story, Conan needs to be introduced and he needs to have his entry, right? And here we don't have that as much um, because it's a novel. Um, but you're right, Jeff. He got bonked on the head at least three or four times. Um, and, um, uh, he shows some doubt and vulnerable vulnerability in as much as Conan is capable of doing so. Um, yeah, uh, more so. Um, and I think there's also some, some other interesting moments of, uh, psychological acuity. I really like that whole scene when like, uh, that whole section when Valerius is like realizing that he's just a puppet. So he's just going to burn the whole thing down from the inside. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> And Hoy, overall, what do you think of Conan the Conqueror? I think we came to a consensus in my section of the book club that it's 
kind of his greatest hits, but as a result, yes, it's kind of as a result, it's like yeah. it's like B plus Conan, it's A plus Sword and Sorcery, but it's B plus Conan. It's not as great as yeah. like uh, People of the Black Circle or Beyond the Black River, which are like two of my favorite stories, or, or Red Nails, but it hits all the like this is all the elements of Conan. If you want to know what Conan is, here, 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 yeah. Um, the other conclusion people came to, which is kind of interesting, is that if you're only ever going to read one Conan story, this is not bad way to do it uh, because you get to yeah. see everything. But on the other hand, if you're planning to read a lot of Conan, this shouldn't be your first one because then you'll read the other. Oh, yet another ape. Oh, yet another giant snake. Yeah. Right. right? <laughs> so that you should read this sort of towards the end if you're planning to read all of the Conan stories, you know. Absolutely. We also had a chat about this kind of being like a greatest hits collection as well. Um, I really enjoyed this book. I would say it is definitely not my favorite Conan story, but it is my favorite Conan paperback from this era. Because in this um, around this time, some of my favorite Conan stories like Tower of the Elephant and some of these other like great Conan stories are usually in collections with either terrible pastiche stories and or with some of the kind of more racisty Robert E. Howard stories that like aren't as fun to read. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice having just like a book that just has lots of great Conan and sword and sorcery in it. So overall I I did really enjoy it. Also, I think the way that Robert E. Howard handled the kind of episodic nature of this novel, I think was done really well the way I was likening it to was how in Hiro's journey, we constantly had these like little episodic moments, but it was always driving the story forward. Elric does a similar thing. Mm -hmm. We have lots of these like little, they're not diversions. They're, they're, they're things that are happening that keep moving us toward the end of the story. Where if I contrast that against like um, Burroughs or uh, farmer, uh, sometimes, especially with Burroughs, these kind of side, these kind of um, episodes that we kind of end up falling into, we end up spending so much time right. in these. Like the moment I was thinking of in Conan the Conqueror is when Conan is captured by the slavers. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, great, now we're going to spend 20 pages like dealing with this <laughs> yeah, stupid thing. <laughs> and no, not at all. Like the next page, like he'd already like decapitated everybody and we're good. Right, right. <laughs> and now he's moving towards Stygia. Right, right. Um, I think you have a good point there. I think that uh, Howard um, is not... Uh, Howard did work a lot of drafts. He was very fast, but he did work in a lot of drafts because we can see this from these, from these, um, these Del Rey collections because we have a lot of the fragments of his stuff. Whereas Burrow is really just an a- the master of the ass pull. <laughs> He's just writing everything in one draft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, uh, I don't know what happens next. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> but I'll figure it out when my typewriter takes me there. Exactly. The first um, John Carter book is so much like that. And, and, and John <laughs> Carter screws around so much. In the second book or something like that, his wife is stuck in something for a year. And he goes and kills 11 months. <laughs> yeah and the, and the same thing happens with farmer with 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 burrows and farmer it's always either i'm getting kidnapped or my girlfriend slash wife keeps getting kidnapped by somebody different and either way like it's taking me all around this this continent or this planet <laughs> yeah 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 conan's oh, not man. gonna stand for that <laughs> but overall i did really enjoy this yeah. yeah honestly i i have to say that um of the of the sections of the book that are clearly from the greatest hits i prefer the dungeon crawl from uh scarlet citadel to this 
Um, mm-hmm. That has some really weird stuff, including him yes. coming across the wizard that's being fed on by a plant mm-hmm. in the basement mm-hmm. of a castle. Yeah. Um, and and I absolutely love that. I do love the description of the dagger that Zenobia gives him. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. It, it, and, and that leading into the ape fight, because I think that's yeah. a, a really great. He's like, he's really. I only got one shot of this. I'm going to take my chance and and. You know, I can't dance around. If I dance around, I'll never kill it. I, I try to kill it and risk getting like bounced around, you know, and, and that, yeah, that yeah. Thing. He's like a bullfighter. Like yeah. he has to pivot on the, on the dagger to get out of the way. But it's more important to get out of the way than to yeah. do a perfect shot with the dagger. Right. Right. So of all of the little episodes that we did have, because I also understand that this was published in pieces in Weird Tales before it was kind of combined into novel form. So it also makes sense that they are kind of episodic in nature just based on how they were published. But of the various episodes that we had throughout this book, what was your what was your favorite part? Uh, going back, I think I really like uh, the part in Stygia. Yeah, that's my uh, favorite. And... I love the um, the aside with the what's her name, Princess Princess Akavasha. Yeah, and, and Princess Akavasha brings that, up that ten thousand year old hottie. Yeah, the ten thousand year old hottie who is surrounded by slimy, like uh, unspeakable horrors that can't be seen, and um, that that she's so bored with. Yeah, yeah, that she's done. She's done with. And, uh, this brings one of the big themes in the book that I really didn't notice the first time through, which is that the alternate visions of kingship that are presented to Conan that he rejects, uh, Akavasha offers him immortality and un- unimagined knowledge and being king of the shadow horde beneath the tombs. Uh, Tresero suggests that he takes over Poitrain and conquers some adjacent lands to set up a new nation. And Zaltatun gives him the opportunity to uh, be put back in power as a vassal state, as the head of a yeah. vassal state. And in each case, he rejects it. Um, and I think that's kind of, I, I always thought that Howard um, wrote Conan as kind of his vision of an ideal person, like like, like this ideal manhood uh, mm-hmm. where he's like, you know, Conan doesn't is, isn't actually interested in power for power's sake or any of that kind of stuff. He wants to, it, the reason why he feels ownership of the, uh, of the throne of, Aquilonia is because he had the support of the people and without yeah. that he could just run along and I, I, I think it um, it has a certain uh, optimism uh, in him that I think is it's interesting given how how uh, dark his sensibilities about civilization are All right. yeah um, to expand on that point I think and I hadn't really thought about that but you do get a little insight. Again, we've talked about Valerius realizing he's a puppet and wanting to burn down on the inside. And then who's the other one? Who's the king of Nemedia? Um King of uh, Nemedia is all is, uh, tri- Tarascus. Tarascus. Tarascus also is fearful of Zaltaltun and, and realizing that, you know, um, being king is not all it's cracked up to be. And to build on to that, um, we talked, you just talked about Cole and Bran McMoran, who are also kings, but the crown weighs heavily mm-hmm. on their head because it's the responsibility. So it's almost when Howard's like, anybody who wants to be king shouldn't be king. <laughs> right. Yeah. But anybody who yeah. is a king realizes it's it's a, a duty rather than uh, you know, an honor. <laughs> right. 
uh, at least in Howard's yeah. vision. In Howard's vision. Yeah, and one of the observations that I was sharing with um, my portion of the patron book club is, you know, Jeremy Harper was telling us about how Robert E. Howard was writing this, trying to get this released as a novel in the UK. And I was saying that I thought it was really interesting knowing knowing that little bit of information because he does have some pretty clear like anti-colonialism messages in here. Um, like there's this one section that Eric was referring to, <coughs> excuse me, where Conan says, let others dream imperial dreams. I but wish to hold what is mine. I have no desire to rule an empire welded together by blood and fire. It's one thing to seize a throne with the aid of its subjects and rule them with their consent. It's another to subjugate a foreign realm and rule it by fear. Mm -hmm. It's great. I think it's really cool. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and we talked about it in my section of the book club too, because I was wondering, um, you know, this was the mid thirties. Um, like, uh, Howard passed away in 36. I think this was written in 34. So it's like, to what extent people were thinking that there was going to be another European war. Um, I think to the other, the general consensus was a little later because 1933, 1934, like Hitler and Mussolini were still getting on time magazine. It's like, Oh, they saved their countries. And you know, yeah. Jeff is, Jeff oh, is enchanted yeah. because, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, kitty. Hi, kitty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, but, you know, Howard Howard might have had sort of these ideas of like Superman and stuff like that, but he was definitely sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-monarchical. Anti um, you know, again, anybody who wants power probably doesn't deserve it, is, is Howard's sort of yeah. overall vision of the universe. Um, when it comes to different Pulp Fiction writers of the time, Obviously, there's um, some very uh, obviously it's it's really hard to avoid uh, seeing a little bit of uh, obvious racism in some of the ways that things are depicted, and and you know the the um, the black corsairs are um, ex extremely excited to have Conan as their leader, and are depicted in this sort of extremely childish way. But I always yeah. found that. Um, Robert Howard's attitudes about it were, were uh, not necessarily uh, uh, towards race and culture, but towards like um, the benefits and of civilization and the sort of, you know, he, he was not somebody who fell into the uh, kind of mental trap of the white man's burden. Like he was like, Oh yeah. Civilization will destroy anybody who controls it for a given period of time. And what's natural is the barbarian, even if he might have retrograde opinions in some other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is although Conan um, or rather, although Howard is clearly like expressing this kind of um, anti-civilization sentiment in his uh, Conan stories, it's interesting to me that when we go to Stygia, Stygia is this like really like super oppressive place yeah. where even Conan's having a hard time just kind of even physically existing there because also it's a very racially homogenous place. Everybody in Stygia is Stygian with the exception of a few slaves they may have. Yeah. So he's having a hard time kind of fitting in where in all of these other places he lives, he's always lived in these like big thriving port towns where there are people from races all over the world living there. So it's easy for anybody to blend into. I did think it was interesting that the most oppressive place was also this very like racially homogenous place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never put that together, but it's totally true. Also, you have to lay down and get eaten by a snake. <laughs> That's also true, yes. 
Yeah. And he's very specifically saying, yeah, it was multicultural, blah, blah. Um, one passage I did note because, uh, again, we, with the frequent mention is that, uh, you know, civilization is, is an artificial thing and, and it will eventually become decadent and, and mm-hmm. barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Um, but when he talks about the Poitanians, who are the southern kingdom of Aquilonia, and they're the ones who remain free from the Namidians, right? And it's basically Provence in France. Um, but he says uh, one thing that's interesting is um, uh, that they are actually very hard. To, the pleasure-loving Poitanians had no need or desire to rest a hard and scanty living from their stern breasts uh, because they live in this like you know wondrous land. But they are also incredibly tough because all, they're constantly being invaded by all the other people who want to you know, take their, yeah. you know, nice lines. So that there is still, um, it, it, it's being put to the test. It, it's not so much civilization and barbarism. It's that whether you're put to the test or whether you are at a life of ease, if you're put to the test, then that is the thing that makes you a true man, you know, or a true yeah. woman in, in, in Howard's view. Right. Right. You know? Um, so I think the, the usual thing is just barbarism or not barbarianism or not, but you know, uh, Brad McMorn is a barbarian to the Romans, but he comes from a civilization that he considers far more ancient than the Romans. Mm-hmm. Right? And that calls obviously the, the also initially a barbarian, but he's feels like he's in charge of this, you know, Atlantis and he has to be, uh, uh, you know, keep it whole. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope that Howard is walking. He understands the benefits, but go too far one way. It's just pure animalism. Go too far the other way. It's decadence and, and inevitable, you know, uh, oppression and, and downfall right and yeah 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 there, one of the um one of the appendices from uh the del rey books talks about how um conan's the only sumerian you ever meet in any of the howard stories and that he's he's the sole representative of his his uh civilization and yet he he is completely different from other sumerians in that he is he's got good humor when he's in a good mood and and takes things lightly and that Sumerians are grim and boring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if um, any of you um, have heard of the, the movie, uh, the whole wide world, which is um, Vincent D'Onofrio is an independent movie in the nineties that um, was based on a girlfriend of Robert Howard's who um, it, she, they like dated briefly and then she wound up becoming a teacher, living her whole life. And then after she retired, she wrote this uh, autobiography in which was Robert Howard was heavily depicted in it. And he was played by Robert, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. And when they depicted him writing, he would be typing at his uh, typewriter, screaming the narrative as he types it, <laughs> which is actually probably exactly what it was like <laughs> at the time. Uh, that yeah, movie I, I have not seen it. Home. It was uh, Renee Zellweger, right? It was in the, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is definitely not a movie. A, um, it is more a kind of late '90s Miramax kind of um, independent movie than a uh, a study of a pulp writer. But mm-hmm. some of the yeah. depictions of Howard are, are are kind of fun in it. I, I cool, yeah. Well, do you scream when you're drawing there, uh, Eric? Yeah. You're like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I do laugh sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell yourself inside jokes while you're doing it. Right, right. 
So moving this conversation over to the gaming side, um, Eric, I'm curious, while you were reading this, were you coming across anything where you're like, oh, this is super proto D&D or proto fantasy role playing? I think the setting uh, and the the setting and the the thing that really strikes me about this that's very much like a D&D game is you have like this sort of open world where you can go in almost any direction. And if there is a central plot, that a combination of circumstances and your whims will kind of lead the party towards the goal in the end. Mm. And, and there's a set of circumstances over the course of the story that from absolutely out of nowhere, he winds up seeing uh, the, the, the ruby get passed off, the stone get passed off to the guy who's going, uh, who, who um, Tarascus basically steals it, I think. And um, wants it wants it to be ditched so that um, Saltatune can't use it again, and so he gives it to this one guy who goes and gets killed, and then and then Conan hears about it, and he's like, "Oh, that's my old fence," in uh, in our, yeah. you know? <laughs> and he goes and meets his old fence, and then his old fence wants him to get killed, and there's like, and and you have these situations where he's everything's being hinted towards. Uh, towards the eventual goal, but some of it is just extraordinary coincidence. And and over the course of it, only on a second reading could I tell you the uh, the number of things. So yeah, I think that that's very much. Uh, oh yeah, like he gets me. knocked out and is thrown onto the the ship that happens to be going in the direction he's already going, anyways. Right. Yeah, like moments like that. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah, and yeah. and and he, but he also has like he gets hinted at. He winds up being rescued by the priests of Asura and they're like oh yeah that's that's what this thing's about you know you learn about the the, the jewel because you wound up hiding in a place that has just so happened it, it, it's just the way that a, a, a good D&D campaign can kind of have a structure to it that you're not always aware of when you're the player and then yeah. the sheer number of environments and that sometimes you know, you're really excited for the action sequences, but the setups can sometimes be the best sessions. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, this almost reminds me, Jeff, of that thing that you always say, like, oh, the players propose of like, like, this is like the Conan players. Like, and then I went to Zingara. Like, sure. Okay. <laughs> that's, like you, Jeff, going, that's like you, Jeff, going, oh, sure. And um, yeah, your old fence is there. And <laughs> right. yeah, why not? <laughs> I forget who in my patron book club was saying this, but, so, but I, it might have been Brandon who was talking about how like the entire the entire book is just chasing the MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how like in a D and D game it would be funny if like every time the the PC showed up somewhere, like now you just move it somewhere else and they have to go there now. <laughs> That's kind of what was happening in this story. Mm-hmm. But it, but while I was reading it, I was noticing a bunch of stuff that like feels very like oh this is where D- early D and D got this. We have like undead paralysis. We've got like the pale flesh-eating ghouls. We've got some cool vampire stuff. Um, we've got, of course, the classic like white apes and giant snakes. But also, we've got like killer illusion spells, mm-hmm. oh, like the yeah. hey, what what are we what are you wearing around your waist? Oh, that's my girdle. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> it looks like a snake to me. Ah, ah, it is a snake. <laughs> and then it bites him, and it actually kills him. So that's um, phantasmal killer. That's Phantas- the name of that spell. Uh, phantasmal force or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. 
or some whatever the old school illusion spell is where it actually can kill right, you. The next one up that reminded me of the that. Next one up from Phantasmal Horse, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a priest and a dru- and basically a druid yeah. or a witch who, in the end, fight uh, kills off the tomb. Right. It's it, yeah. they turn the undead. Yeah. It's it's right, yeah, and then just a the whole mixture of like. Oh, here's our here's our Renaissance Spain kingdom, and here's our and that feels like very like you know oh, I have all these cool things. I want them all to coexist, and that's you know World of Greyhawk, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah, and it's Mistara, yeah. and it's a little bit of Forgotten Realms, yeah, yeah. and it's also a little bit of City State of the Invincible Overlord. Hoy, were you noticing any spe- specific things that felt very proto D and D to you in this? Um, I mean, all the things that you've mentioned, um, but it does feel very like a uh, but even in a modern game, I think that some things feel like it could be a modern game. Like, again, uh, him meeting Publio, Publio, Publius, that feels like a player saying, like, oh, I've got a Benny, and I'm going to cash it in, and oh, here's my, here's, my, uh, here's my contact, here's my former fence, and this is how I'm going to get my next clue, right? And so that feels a lot like, uh, you know, something like my, that might happen like in Savage Worlds or like uh, a gumshoe game. Um, so oh, yeah. coming at it from the other end, that's what it feels like. Um, and I, I'm I'm open to that. I don't I don't like the kind of things where a player can like totally pivot the whole game and like just make it their own by say by throwing down a token. But I'm always willing to have them be able to do something slightly off the beaten path, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like I like that. Um, Proto D and D. I mean, we got everything. I mean, the, the freaking Stygian thing is like, oh well, we, well vampire vampires not enough. We'll throw in some evil wizards and we'll throw in a mummy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the mummy turns out it turns out the mummy is actually not that not a bad guy. He's like, oh sure, you go that no, way. The mummy is very helpful. You're very helpful. Right? Oh yeah. yeah right. He's like, I am an ancient wizard. I am dead. May I show you the way right. out? <laughs> like, how many more things can you throw into that pyramid? Right. I mean, it's just like that's so like funhouse dungeon, you know, stuff. Um, the Stygian <laughs> priest with his um, black hand that basically. Yeah, right. his hand the of hand, death. And the hand the, of death, and then when he gets killed, he turns completely black, like black, black, not like African American <laughs> black, just literally black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Dan Alexander was looking at the the old uh, Conan um, AD and D adventure modules, and apparently in those adventure modules, they point out that, um, or maybe point out isn't the right word, but they 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 specify that the only kind of spells that are really kind of uh, um, present in this world are spells of summoning illusion, charming and death. Mm-hmm. That makes that sense. You don't really have those like artillery spells. Right. Right. No. Um, although it does have some, some sort of elemental magic for the cliff. Oh, red nails. Oh, yeah. Red nails. Yeah. He has a, um, some sort of lightning shooting. Pseudoscience device. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's like a Tesla yeah. coil. Um, yeah but similarly we were talking because because when um when when dan said that i responded with well what about that moment where zaltatune has that like orb that he throws at conan and it stuns him and he passes out and then a few people were talking about how that was more alchemical in nature than Mm -hmm. necessarily magical so um i do think you know some super science some alchemy some things like that can be thrown in as well but i think that's kind of more where you get your artillery right powers from rather than from magic right, right. I, I always think of um of the conan setting and as being sort of low fantasy and i always make the difference between low and high fantasy as like magic is rare and a little gross because it's a violation yeah. of, of nature and um i loved the fact that he recognized uh zaltatune from a coin 
that the priest yeah. of Asura flips him, and he's like, huh. "That's the guy." Right. And he's like, "It basically this empire is so evil that that coin is basically an an ingredient, like um." A component of a of spell of making spells, right, right. That is like a mm-hmm. talisman within itself, right. Yeah, and I love that. Um, this is a lot of magic for a Robert Howard, right. It is yeah. uh, for a Robert Howard book, right. And you make That's, a point too, also with the so to the extent that there is quote unquote good magic or white magic, it's not really a violation of nature, right. It's it's like putting the thing back into its course, and so yeah. whatever the the older sort of what would normally be a witch, but she's the wise woman in the story. So it was Zaleda. Zaleda, right? Mm-hmm. So she's her stuff is much more subtle and it's putting things back in its course. Um, who is the African wizard in um, the Solomon Kane stories? I can't remember the name of him, but he's also a guy who puts yeah, things back, you know, remember. back on its course, um, as opposed to something big and flashy. Anything big and flashy is calling upon things that men are not meant to know, whereas other things are like, okay, this is the way the, the nature and the universe is supposed to be. Right. Yeah, like when Zeltatun goes into his tent so that he can summon the the clouds and the rains. Like I forget yeah. exactly what he says to them, but he says yeah. something like, you know, magic is not the waving of a wand. I shall no. be in my tent. And right. then while he's oh, in the yeah. tent, they hear all the strange music and like <laughs> and it's just Zeltatun in the tent, but they're also <laughs> hearing like the chantings of other voices like from yeah. beyond. That right, is right. so much like the uh portion of a Song of Ice and Fire book when um that the, the oh Khaleesi's uh Daenerys's husband is dying and the and witch offers yeah. to to keep him alive and and there's voices and dancing and yeah all this right. horrible stuff within the right. tent that nobody's supposed to go near right right um, I love and, that aspect. And the it. magic is so different in sword and sorcery than it is in Dungeons and Dragons. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, especially if you're a higher level wizard, you just have all these spells that you can cast and there's literally no cost to you other than like material components. But other than material components, you're not there's you're not giving up a portion of your soul, you're not spending your your literal life essence or your energy or anything like that. Where in sword and sorcery in the Conan universe, Casting spells saps you of your power, requires mm-hmm. you to regain your energy. The magic is slow. You often need to ally yourself with really dark entities in order for this magic to happen. And that's just that's my favorite flavor of magic. Absolutely. It's just like sword and sorcery style, just nasty, gritty, dirty mm-hmm. magic. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that Zeltatun has to, uh, after he has done all these spells, he has to sleep with the you know, powder of the black Lotus, which I, uh, you know, I, I assume that in some way the nightmares that he would have, that he cannot achieve rest yeah. in any other way than to be drugged beyond, uh, human comprehension mm-hmm. because uh, he evo- evoked such horrific things in his, in his magic. Right. And I like also like all the other, you know, conspirators like, Hey, Zaltatun, can't you do this? And he goes, Yes, uh, you know, wizards still need not, you know, can still use make use of axes and spears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, and I feel like the the rule system that would best emulate the kind of magic that I love in this is I think DCC with some house rules, where either you yeah. have like I would I would suggest use the DCC spell system. But um, you have to spell burn when you cast. So you have to spell burn a number of points equal to the spell level, even just to cast it. 
and that each point that you spell burn takes a um, is how many rounds it takes to cast that spell. So mm-hmm. if you're casting a third level spell and you want to um, spell burn an additional three points, it's going to take you six rounds to get that spell off. Which in sword and sorcery terms is still really fast, but in in fantasy role playing is a pretty slow amount of time. Now the boring part is it's taking your wizard out of out of like gaming out of like the battle for six rounds, which might might get kind of boring. But right. well. The- it, it leads to a peak because I remember Jeff. Uh, I'm playing with you. You were always that guy who would like spell burn everything at the end and just like oh, blow yeah. up the adventure from <laughs> totally apart. Hell yeah! Uh, and um, and I was I appreciate it. I respected that. But um, but my response to that in games that after you had moved on from the thing was to uh, basically do what you had done, Jeff, which was allow spell burn, but a not let you spell burn more points than your level. Um, so that you know initial wizards couldn't just call on like you know crack the universe open if you were a first level wizard. Right, and also, as you say, also have spell burn take time, so that you had to be very judicious if you wanted to create a really powerful spell. Um, so I actually did, uh, you know, we we converged on the same idea there, uh, and it was just in response to like, uh, you know, not blowing the adventure wide open because my my oh. DC sessions were a little bit more campaign oriented than yours were. Yeah, the, yeah. Totally. Although personally, I love when people blow up a campaign world. So <laughs> I would, I would, I, I personally would never limit the amount that a, a first level character can spell burn because I want them to get those max spell results and to really just like fuck with the setting. Like I love right. that. Like, right, right. like do it and like let's figure out what happens. That stuff just really excites me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was earlier in my. I'm a little probably more flexible as a game as a game master then, and that was like relatively early in my return to gaming. Um, I would still have to think about depending on the nature of the game. Uh, DCC generally seems kind of wide open, but some of the, some of the settings like, um, what's the one with the, the, the Manly Wade Wellman one? That seems a little bit more grounded. Chained That's Coffin. Chained Coffin. So I'd be, you know, Purple Planet, I'm fine with blowing stuff, stuff wide open. Chained Coffin, <laughs> yeah. I want to play it a little bit more grounded. Um, of course, of course. You yeah. want to tailor it to the setting to make it yeah. all kind of make sense within that. Right. And before we kind of run out of time here, I'm curious, Eric, what would you most like to steal from this story? For your gaming, yeah, I love the Stygian thing. Yeah. I, I I do love the uh, the idea of creating a, a you know I am I'm not a uh, a DM uh, by nature. I am definitely a player, uh, and and so I would love any setting in which some cosmic horror winds up getting brought into it. I I am not sure, but mm-hmm. I love the idea of a kind of temple setup where you have kind of un- beyond the easily defined D&D type monsters, you have these uh, kind of unspeakable uh, queasiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a moment where Conan talks about, um, God, it, it, he talks about how um, he, he's, he has this, he's really strangely sad and depressed after he leaves uh, the, the princess Akavasha because um, it's one of these great romantic tales that people love. And that the truth of it is this kind of grotesque, immortal, mm-hmm. uh, like that the actual truth of it, it, even though she's very beautiful and stuff, is really grotesque. Well, and there's a lot of darkness in that levity. Yeah. 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 Because she's like, she's basically like, oh, you're cute. I'm bored here. Follow me. I want to hang out with you. Yeah. And he's like, all right, fine. And he does. And then she's like, oh, by the way, I'm a big, great evil and I'm going to devour you now. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's come at it at a slightly different angle there, uh, Eric. If you had a particular scene or bit that you would want to illustrate, like 
let me add it in this story. Oh, yeah. Which, which, which would that be for you? Good question. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to say the, uh, the scene in, um, in, in, I'm sorry to do this. I think it's violating the rules. But the scene in the Scarlet Citadel when he comes across the uh, the <laughs> wizard being being fed on by the giant plant, sure, sure, why not? Okay. decides well, to uh, to free I, him. I know I which one, one I want to hire you to illustrate. Which I, one? I want when when Conan comes upon the uh, soldiers who are who are about to burn Zaleda at the stake, but then her wolves come out and they're like tearing their throats out. I think that would be a really fun thing to illustrate. Oh yeah, and I also love. Um, Conan uh, disguised as the executioner, turning mm. on the guards. <laughs> yes, it, it, yes. Is, it, it's amazing. Right, right. Hold Wait, on, what, <laughs> what's, what scene do you want to commission Eric to to um, illustrate? What well, the more sort of grotesque, the better, I guess. So, um, uh, cheating, <laughs> I would want to see Eric your take on Worms of the Earth. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But in I here, have a drawing from Worms of the Earth, but it's uh, it's yeah. uh, I can send it to you later. Right, right, uh, and. People, I really do encourage you, if you play DCC, to look for Andrew Sternick's module that Eric illustrated, Fellfolk of the Moors, so you'll get a good taste of what he's capable of doing there. Um, but um, in this story, um, uh, I think uh, maybe the resurrection of Zaltatun, the first initial resurrection, maybe a little sequence, yes. of a, tripti- a triptych yeah. of that, Eric. I would like to see yeah, you do that. Like that. That would be interesting. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah. All right, so we can go ahead and start wrapping this conversation up. Eric, do you have any final thoughts you would like to share? You know, I had all these um, all these notes about Pulp Fiction, sort of Howard's writing style and how it was basically like a form of writing that was, you know, it was written quickly and meant to be read quickly by people who were really casual readers. Yeah. And and as a result, like Howard's writing style really just is meant to grab you and pull you around Um and and is immensely entertaining for doing it. It's almost like an amusement park ride, which is so different from like, you know, I always uh, compare to Lovecraft and Tolkien where Lovecraft is like this. I always think of Lovecraft as like a curry where it's like this extraordinarily dense, heavily perfumed uh, food that once you get a taste for it, you absolutely love it. But, you know, you have to develop a taste for it if you're not yeah. from a culture that practices it. And then Tolkien... It was I, I mean, Lovecraft and Tolkien were both great writers who were fundamentally amateurs. Mm-hmm. And Robert Howard is a is a professional writer. And what I mean by that is not skill, but ability to uh, manipulate his writing for desired effect. Yeah, and, and to write um, to a market also. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was thinking that you know the the legacy. I think of pulp writing as an aspect of modernism, as as you know, specific, I see more similarity between Howard's writing and like Hemingway than most people who are in universities would <laughs> suggest. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. but the modern, uh, the modern legacy of pulp writing is probably, uh, you know, Stephen King is a part of it, but also, uh, hard boiled detective fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get the writings of, um, Westlake or Westlake. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was the, uh, I wound up pulling the classic, uh, Raymond Chandler quote that says, uh, it was a blonde, a blonde to make a Bishop kick a hole in the stained glass window. It's like <laughs> that kind of like, yeah, 
<laughs> so we are out of time. Eric, folks who want to find you online, where can they do that? And do you have any projects you're working on that you would like folks to be aware of? Um, I have tons of professional projects. I want to making the line of, um, oh, the Motley Crue tour that just ended. I developed that line along with a bunch of uh, you know talented designers. And I made a couple of those pieces myself. Cool. The current Rob Zombie tour was all, you know, I, I created, directed that. Awesome. Um, and I was, I, I, I went to one of those tour dates. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does a lot of his own work, but I, I wind up um, uh, doing what I can. Um, and then I'm on uh, EJ Illustration on Instagram. That's where I put the personal work. And a lot of the illustration stuff. I do have a website, but I almost never update it. Um, but there's stuff on it. It's ejillustration.com. Cool. I should probably come up with a better handle, but, you know. <laughs> and Hoy, where can folks find us? All right. Um, if you uh, like us, you can rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, Twitter is always good at, at appendix underscore n. Or you can drop us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for our patron book clubs, which we do before we record. And for this episode, we had a record number of attendees. So we broke it up into two groups, and we're actually going to release both of those to the public. So two weeks after this one drops, we will drop the episode that I, the patron book club that I did with my group. And then two weeks after that, we'll drop the one that Hoy did with his group. In my group, I was joined by Jeremy Harper, Brandon Cruz, Michael Kelly, Jonathan Nickel, Rob Poynton, and Dan Alexander. And in Hoy's group, he was joined by Robert Coleman, Joseph Hoopman, Rick Byrne, Oliver Brackenberry, Stephen Wendell, and Adam Styers. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, Ego Orb, Sam Watson, Sean P. Kelly, Kurt Hockenberry, Gentle Reader, Ron Lipke, Gabriel Laycock, Dave Hotstream, Alexander Case, and James Knight. Thank you for your support. Also, our patrons are able to vote on which books we are going to cover for upcoming episodes. For episode 134, the winner of that poll was Michael Shaban's Gentleman of the Road. For 135, the winner was Carolyn Stevemer's A College of Magics. Currently, our patrons are voting on episode 136, which Hoy gave us a nice robot theme for. And when this episode drops, we're going to be doing a cyberpunk-themed poll where the options are going to be William Gibson's Neuromancer, Richard Morgan's Altered Carbon, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and George Alec Effinger's When Gravity Fails. Now, at the moment, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is also on Hoy's poll for the episode before that, (laughs) episode 136. So if that one wins that poll, I have an alternate. So I will then replace Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep with Alfred Bester's The Star's My Destination. There you go, people. Vote early, vote often. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Either way, we have some cool shit coming up that I'm excited for. That's fantastic. Neuromancer, I, I would vote for that multiple times if I could. It's an extraordinary book. Uh, we'll get all, Oliver will vote for that like about five times. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you are a patron, so you're going to get to vote on these if you'd like to. Yeah, definitely. It's going to get me on there. And yeah, also, I'd also like to give a shout out to our guest for being a patron on our show. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, thank you for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you.
Thank you so Eric, much. Eric, it's, it's uh, so much fun. It's so great to see you again after such a long time. <laughs> great to see you. I would, I... Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, honor and pleasure as always uh, to meet any of all of our guests, old friends and new, and uh, see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>